Real estate terminology, a rundown house in need of repair is labeled a fixer-upper. Nobody is going to purchase a shack or a dump or a condemned building. But put out an ad using the term fixer-upper, and some energetic young handyman might just look on it as a challenge and take it off your hands. That said, at the time of Haggai and Zechariah, the temple in Jerusalem was a real fixer-upper. For two centuries, the grand and glorious temple built by Solomon was the center of Israel's national life. Now it had become a patch of weed and rock. You remember, we've been studying it. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians demolished the city, toppled the temple, and took the people back to Babel. And the Jews served out a 70-year sentence in captivity. While they were there, though, what was left of the temple lay in ruins. The temple had been reduced to rubble. But the captivity came to an end. In 536 B.C., the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon. And the new administration, headed by King Cyrus the Mede, and, or King Darius the Mede and King Cyrus the Persian, they issued a decree allowing the Jews to return. You remember in the book of Daniel, both those men were friends with the Hebrew prophet Daniel. And through his influence, they became fond of the Jews. And true to scripture, Cyrus allowed them to return to their homeland. And that's when God could have said, anyone interested in a real fixer-upper? It was God's desire that the Jews return home and rebuild their temple. And that's when a young, ambitious handyman accepted God's commission. You see, rubble was right up Zerubbabel's alley. Governor Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua led 50,000 Jews, eager and energetic, patriotic and pioneering, to pull up stakes there in Babylon and return to Judah to reconstruct the city and to rebuild the temple. And they got off to a great start. They laid the temple's foundation in the second month of the year 535 B.C. Things were going great. But sadly, that's as far as they got with the construction. Zerubbabel ran into opposition, and the work came to a screeching halt. The delay provided time for the people to lose momentum and to get distracted. They got interested in building their own homes and forgot about a home for God. Haggai chapter 1 verse 2 tells us, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says... The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now, usually the Lord speaks of the Jews as my people. But here's the first clue. He's angry with these returned Jews, where he calls them not my people, but notice this people. <laughs> and this people live by motto. Always put off until tomorrow what you can do today. You see, they were procrastinators. It reminds me of the pastor's son. He was eight years old, but he was ha having been raised in the church. He had heard all of the biblical terms, justification, sanctification, 
revelation, all the Asians. He had heard them countless times. He was familiar with the terms. He just didn't know what they meant. But he did know that all of those Asians were church words. One day in his class at school, the teacher asked if anyone knew the meaning of the word procrastination. He thought for a while and then he answered, no, I'm not sure what it means, but I know my church believes in it. Sadly, most churches seem to believe in procrastination. It's a modus operandi. It characterizes all they do. See, it's one thing, guys, to wait on the Lord. But when you know that his time is now and God's tool is you, then you need to set your hand to do the work. I believe we need to trust in God, but we need to trust, not rust. For the next 15 years, that's what happened. They rusted. The rebuilding of the temple was neglected. And this grieved the heart of God. And in response to their inactivity, God raised up two men, two prophets, one named Haggai and one named Zechariah, to light a fire under these Jews to recommence the construction. To this end, Haggai preaches four sermons over a four-month period in the fall of the year 520 B.C. Haggai's first sermon deals with the people's self-centeredness. His second sermon shows the people's short-sightedness. The third sermon, their self-righteousness. And the fourth sermon speaks of their tendency to second-guess themselves. You see, today God is building a spiritual temple, His church. And the same four problems can set us back in the work He's called us to do. Self-centeredness, short-sightedness, self-righteousness, and second-guessing. Haggai's sermons are as relevant to us as they were to the Jews of old. Haggai's first sermon begins in chapter 1, verse 3. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Notice Haggai's sarcasm. The Jews said it wasn't time yet to build God's house, but it was certainly time for them to be building their own houses. Notice, too, they had not just built houses for themselves, but they had built paneled houses. They were living in luxury. Ezra chapter 3, verse 7, which covers this same period, tells us that when the Jews began their construction of the temple, they bought cedar logs from Lebanon. And it's my suspicion That their fancy cedar siding, their paneled houses, were built with material that had been dedicated to the temple of the Lord. They had lifted this wood off the job site of God's house and they had used it for themselves. Imagine stealing cedar logs intended for God's house and using it to build your own house. Remember, these people started out serving God. They had a holy ambition. They wanted to build a temple for God. But over time, somehow, they got distracted and their attention shifted from God's house to their own concerns and their own little worlds and their own advantage. Beware, if it happened to them, it can also happen to us. Haggai warns them in verse 6. You have so much and bring in little. 
You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Live for yourself and there is no satisfaction. The reward never equals the investment. Real fulfillment comes when we get involved in a great work for God. God tells them in verses 10 and 11, Therefore the heavens above above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, on all the labor of your hands. You see, because they neglected the work of building the temple, God sent them lean times. He refused to let their work prosper. He cut off their abundance. And my question to us tonight, why do we think he would treat us any differently if we made the same mistake of putting our own concerns above his? Obviously, Haggai's message impacted Zerubbabel and his fellow Jews. But notice the word that really stirs their hearts here in verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. And so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. You see, despite their self-centeredness, despite the 15 years that they had wasted in their inactivity, God was still with these people. Isn't that amazing? He still wanted to use them to do this great work. And it was that assurance of God's unfailing love, his amazing patience that lit a fresh fire within them that caused them to return to the task. Three more of Haggai's sermons are recorded in chapter two. The first sermon was given on August the 29th, 520 B.C., Zerubbabel and the Jews resumed construction on the temple on September the 21st. Haggai's second sermon was given a little more than three weeks later on October the 17th. Now understand what went on between his sermon and between the, between the recommencing of the construction and his second sermon. Three weeks had elapsed. And at least 13 of those 26 days between those two dates were holy days. Thus, the Jews celebrated the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. All in that time period, because of all of the festivities, because of the holy days, very little work got done in those three weeks. But here's what did happen during that time. It gave an opportunity for a group of cynics to rise up and to cast doubt and to put down the work. These were the old men who remembered the majesty and beauty and grandeur of Solomon's temple. They could tell that this rebuilt temple was going to be a shack in comparison. And these old geezers, they started voicing all of their negative impressions. Imagine the result. The people are pumped up. They're charged. They're fired up. Raring and ready to do a great work for God. When along comes these pessimists who douse the flame. That's when the Lord intervenes with a promise. I love it. He says in Haggai chapter 2 verse 9, The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. 
As we said this morning, according to the Babylonian Talmud, there were five items missing from Zerubbabel's temple that had been present in Solomon's. The Ark of the Covenant, the holy fire on the altar, the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies, the spirit of prophecy or the Holy Spirit, the Urim and the Thummim, the tools the priests used to discern God's will. In addition, Zerubbabel's temple was smaller. It was built with cheaper materials. How could this second temple ever be considered more glorious than the first? And of course, the answer is in verse 6. It was to this second temple that God sent the desire of all nations, another name for the Messiah himself. Jesus walked the halls of this second temple. He taught in its porticos. He worked miracles on its porches. The glory of Jesus more than made up for the trimmings that this temple lacked. You see, the problem with these pessimists, the reason they hindered Zerubbabel, it was their short-sightedness. Their evaluation was superficial. They looked only at the brick and the mortar. They didn't see the purpose that God had in store for this second temple. Guys, we too can make similar judgments. We think that the church with 15,000 people is more glorious than the church with 50. Or the spacious new facilities have a greater glory than the church that meets in the storefront or in the warehouse. Don't be deceived. God has a wonderful plan and purpose for every church. The church is where Jesus dwells. And what makes any church, no matter its size, no matter its splendor, special and important and vital, it's the same for every church. It's that there you can go and meet Jesus Christ. That's what makes the church a special place, not these other factors. In Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus said to his disciples, For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Hey, you can get with two or three believers and it be the greatest church you've ever been to. Because Jesus will meet you. And that's what counts when it comes to church. Jesus has a purpose for every church, large and small. Don't ever diminish the value of a church because of some superficial consideration. The last two of Haggai's sermons were given on the same day, December the 18th. As the work progressed, Zerubbabel's band of married men developed another problem, this time self-righteousness. You see, they got proud. Hey, they had made some progress, gotten some construction done, and they had adopted the attitude, wow, look at what we have built for God. Here's another potential pitfall for our church. The church is intended to be a source of pleasure to God, never a source of pride for his people. Haggai illustrates this in an interesting way. He teaches the people a lesson in Levitical law. In verses 11 through 14, he explains that holiness is non-communicable. In other words, you can't become holy by hanging out with holy people or in holy places. Holiness is non-contagious. In fact, you can swim in a sea of holy water and you won't come out any holier than when you went in. God's point is this. Just erecting a building, even if it's a temple, is no substitute for commitment and for purity and for devotion to God. What we do with our hands doesn't excuse what happens in our hearts. Attitude matters even for temple builders. The fourth and final sermon was directed to Zerubbabel himself. 
Apparently, the governor had spent a lot of time second-guessing himself. And so Haggai encourages him and reminds this doubting leader that God is going to exalt him in a wonderful way. Verse 23 tells us that God will make Zerubbabel like a signet ring or vest him with the authority of a king. Zerubbabel remained a governor for the rest of his life. But I believe that this prophecy is for the future. Apparently, the task of rebuilding the temple was just the training Zerubbabel needed for the job that he will one day hold in the kingdom age. The ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. It reminds us of the promise, though. He who is faithful in a little will be given authority over much. If not in this lifetime, God will fulfill it when he comes in his kingdom. Now, Haggai was a doer. The capsulation of his message are found in the two words, be strong and work. That was his approach to the service of God. Whereas Zechariah was a dreamer. And God gave him eight visions. Here's how I like to view this, these two men. Haggai drives up in a pickup truck with one of those metal toolboxes in the bed. He's a guy who's got the keys hanging from his belt. He enjoys working on the temple, but for him that means pounding and perspiring. Whereas Zechariah is equally committed to building the temple, but his contribution is to pray and to praise. Haggai saws for God, whereas Zechariah sees for God. Haggai is an actionary. Zechariah is a visionary. Haggai is a doer. Zechariah is a dreamer. And both approaches are needed. Likewise, both types of leaders are needed in the building of the spiritual temple, the church. Zechariah begins in chapter 1, verse 3, with a warning. A warning to repent. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. The Lord had given this nation a new beginning. The word Zechariah means Jehovah remembers. And God had remembered his promise to restore Judah and to bring the people back to the land as proof that he keeps his promises. That the people should learn from their mistakes and they should not fall into the same traps again. In chapter 1, verse 7, Zechariah marks the date. He says, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which according to their calendar was February the 15th, 519 B.C. It was a night that Zechariah would never forget. For on that one night, God showed the prophet eight different visions. Eight visions that span the scope of human history and project Israel's history into the long distant future. In addition, these eight visions center on none other than Jesus the Messiah. These visions are messianic and millennial. They're wild and woolly. And they no doubt kept Zechariah up many more nights pondering their implications. Here's what happens. While Haggai and Zerubbabel are working to rebuild the temple, strange visions are going on between the two temples on the side of Zechariah's head. 
In the first vision, Zechariah sees four horses, two red, one white, and one sorrel, which is sort of a reddish-brown color, the color your kids' pants are when they come back in from playing outside. He sees these four horses standing among the myrtle trees. Now, the horses are God's messengers. The myrtle trees represent Israel. Reference Isaiah chapter 55, verse 13, when you get home. Understand a myrtle tree is a small evergreen. It's more a shrub, really, than a tree. It never grows more than eight feet tall. It has dark green leaves, and when its petals are crushed, they give off a fragrant odor. Likewise, Israel is an evergreen. It never dies. But it is small in comparison with the other nations of the world. And the crushing of the petals represents Israel's propensity to grow through suffering and persecution. The messengers report that the nations are at ease, but they won't be forever. For God is zealous for Jerusalem. He loves the Jews, and he is angry with the nations that have persecuted Israel. God will comfort the Jews, and he will judge the Gentiles. Verse 16 predicts Jerusalem's glorious future. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it. What an encouragement to Zerubbabel and the other workers who were building on the temple. In verses 18 and 19, Zacharias sees four horns or nations who have scattered Israel. He also sees four craftsmen, and these craftsmen are demolition experts. And it's their job to judge the four horns, probably the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. They were the nations who did help to scatter Israel. The four craftsmen are the Persians who conquer Babylon, the Greeks who overcome the Persians, the Romans who defeat the Greeks, and the Messiah himself who will one day come and crush the revived Roman Empire of the last days. In chapter 2, Zacharias sees a man with a tape measure in his hand. He's going out to measure the dimensions of the city of Jerusalem. Apparently, the city has changed ownership. It now belongs to the Jews, so it needs to be resurveyed. Sort of what happens when you sell your house. Verses 4 and 5 had to have been an incredible comfort to the returning Jews. For Zechariah is told that even though the city has no walls, God himself will be a wall of fire around her. God will comfort and protect and guard the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The subject of Zechariah's vision in chapter 3 is Joshua the high priest. And old Joshua is not exactly dressed for success. He's standing before God wearing filthy garments. And that doesn't really give it justice, for the word filthy in the Hebrew could be translated excrement-covered garments or dung-splattered garments. Imagine a bad case of diarrhea. That's his robe. The angel of the Lord is on Joshua's one side. Satan is on the other side. And the devil is up to his old tricks here. The accuser of the brethren is doing all that he can to heap guilt and condemnation on a child of God who is seeking to help build this temple. It reminds me of Martin Luther's vision. You remember Martin was at his desk when Satan appeared to him to remind him of all the evil that he had done. Finally, Luther had had enough of old Lucifer. 
And he shouted out, it's all true, Satan, and many more sins I have committed in my life, which are known to God only. But right at the bottom of your list, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And Luther grabbed the inkwell that was sitting on his desk and he threw it at Satan. It was the turning point in Luther's life. And from that moment, he was free from the devil's dehabilitating condemnation. Of course, the inkwell missed and it hit the wall. And in fact, you can go to the Wartburg Castle in Germany and still see the famous ink spot right there on the wall. This is what happens here in chapter three to Joshua. Satan is there to oppose him, to condemn him. When the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Boy, what a fitting description for all of us. <laughs> Are we not brands plucked from the fire? None of us deserve God's mercy. All of us are hell bound. If it had not been for God's gracious plucking us from the fire, where would we be? We've all sinned. None of us are good enough for God. Try to prove that you're worthy of God's favor. And Satan will have a heyday with you. He will tear you up on the witness stand, man. He is an alligator of a litigator. And I can only imagine what he'll do with you if you stand there and try to justify yourself and rationalize your sin and try to cover up your iniquities. It reminds me of the accused thief who tried to defend himself, who tried to muster his own defense. He said to his alleged victim, he said, did you get a good look at my face when I stole your purse? Whoops. A slip of the tongue. And the amateur attorney got 10 years in jail. Try to defend yourself and it'll only get worse. But that's not what Joshua does. Note the key to his defense. Verse 5. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Notice the angel of the Lord is Joshua's attorney. And remember in the Old Testament, more often than not, the angel of the Lord was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Joshua here has recruited the divine Perry Mason. You remember old Perry? He never lost a case. And Jesus is undefeated. He has never taken a case. He hasn't won. Jesus rebukes the devil and he strips away Joshua's filthy threads and replaces them with rich robes and a clean turban. And this is what Jesus does for us. He pays the penalty for our sin. He forgives us and accepts us. Then he rebukes the devil, clothes us with his righteousness, and makes us a member of his royal family. Wow. I want Jesus defending me. I'll admit I've sinned. But Lord, I want you to defend me. I want to hide behind Jesus. I want Jesus to say to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. You remember what the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate, literally an attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In the rest of the chapter, the angel goes on to prophesy of Joshua's future. In verse 8, the high priest is called a wondrous sign. As a high priest, Joshua is a type of our high priest, Jesus Christ. Verse 8 goes on to call him a sign of God's servant and the branch of David's family tree, both titles for the Messiah. The focus in chapter 3 is the religious leader of the time, Joshua. 
Whereas the focus in chapter 4 becomes the civil leader, Zerubbabel. The issue for Joshua is access to God. The issue for Zerubbabel is service for God. And notice the same sequence applies to us all. First, God unites us with himself. First, God uses us or brings us into contact with himself. Then he uses us for his glory. It's always access first, service afterwards. He sanitizes us. Then he energizes us and utilizes us. In chapter 4, Zerubbabel sees a bowl of oil on the top of a lampstand with seven different feeders, each supplying seven lamps. It was a type of a Jewish menorah. In addition, though, beside the bowl, bowl at the top of the lampstand were two olive trees. Zechariah notices that this lampstand is being supernaturally supplied with oil. Usually it's the priest's job to fill the menorah with the olive oil, but no priest is involved here. The olive trees are dripping oil into the bowl. In verse 6, the angel who shows him the vision interprets it. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now understand this, throughout scripture, oil is a type of the Holy Spirit. Think of all that oil does. It soothes, it lubricates, it heals, it lights, it warms, it refreshes, it invigorates, it polishes, it shines. All of those same things the Holy Spirit does for us. Zerubbabel is building a temple. And it's no easy task. His job seems as hard as climbing a mountain. In fact, verse 7 asks, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth a capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Zerubbabel will cut down this mountain. He will cut it down into a plain. He will build the temple. The job will get done. But it won't be because of Zerubbabel's brains or because of his brawn. It'll be a work of God's Holy Spirit. Guys, when it comes to New Testament temple building, the same applies. It always is a result of God's grace and the work of God's Holy Spirit. Don't ever get a haughty attitude. Don't ever think that, oh, look how good we are, how great our church is. Look at how it's grown and take credit for what God has done. No, it's not by mind nor by power. It's not by our brains or our brawn, but it's a work of God's spirit that causes the church to grow. Any true work of God is always accomplished by the spirit of God. Understand, it's not more elbow grease that we need. It is the supernatural oil of the Holy Spirit. A lot of churches are asking for more elbow grease. I want more oil of the Holy Spirit. The angel says to Zechariah in verse 10, For who has despised the day of small things? What an encouragement. The geezers who remembered Solomon's temple, they mocked this new temple. It was smaller. It was less ornate. But Zechariah is not to despise the small things, for God uses small things as well as large things. Sometimes God's greatest works 
are subtle and small and silent and simple. J. Vernon McGee once wrote, We Americans are impressed with the big and brassy. We like our Christian work to be a success story. We measure success by the size of the building and the crowds that come. Well, I am becoming more and more convinced that the Lord is working in quiet ways and in quiet places today. Don't be discouraged when the Bible study you start only has five people who come. Who knows the work that God is doing in the lives of those five and the work that may eventually result? The temple that God is building is made up of lots and lots of small things. It reminds me of Robert Shepard. He escaped recently from jail out of Charleston, South Carolina, out of a jail there using dental floss. That's right. The rope that he used to climb over the fence was made by braiding together 48 strands of mint-flavored wax dental floss. It's true. Your life may represent a single strand of dental floss, but who knows how God is twisting it together with other lives and with circumstances. Who knows what great work God might do in and through you. Don't despise the day of small things. In chapter 5, Zechariah sees a flying scroll. And it's quite large, 30 feet long by 20 feet wide. Sort of reminds me of the airplanes that pull the banners behind them. When you're sitting at the ball game, you see them come over the stadium. That's what Zechariah must have seen. But this banner had an ominous message, a message of judgment. Verse 3 says, he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Chapter 5 closes with Zechariah's version of I Dream of Genie. But rather than a genie in a bottle, he sees a woman in a bushel basket. And the girl that Zechariah sees is not some cute little genie in a skimpy costume. To the contrary, her name is Wickedness. She's ugly. She's a trip. She's terrible. You might say she's a real basket case. The angel takes this wicked woman, stuffs her into the basket, then seals the basket with a lead lid. She's quickly transported back to Shinar, the land of Babylon. And apparently the whole vision means that the evils the Jews had imported from Babylon will one day be returned to cinder. In chapter 6, Zechariah sees another wild and vivid vision. He sees two bronze mountains and four chariots riding out between the two mountains. The chariots, presumably war chariots, are pulled by horses. Red horses, black horses, white horses, and dappled or pale colored horses. It's interesting that 600 years later, on the Isle of Patmos, the Apostle John will see these very same horses. These are the four horses that John describes in Revelation chapter 6. And just as in Revelation, they appear here to be instruments of God's divine judgment. In chapter 7, God reminds the returning Jews that performing rituals, fasting and observing the feast is no substitute for loving God and loving your brother. Verse 5 mentions the fast of the fifth month, or as the Jews call it, Tisha B'Av, or the ninth day of the month of Av. This was a day of infamy. The day the Babylonians burned down the temple. 
even to this day, over 2,000 years later, every year the world over, Jews commemorate the ninth of Av as a day of fasting and mourning over their past sin and over the destruction of their temple. It is a holy day to the Jewish people. Yet here's the point. You can make every day a religious observance. But if you don't desire God enough to follow him on a daily basis, your worship is in vain. Just the fast, just the celebration is not enough. God wants our hearts. In chapter 8, we learn that God is a zealous God. Don't picture God as some old man who you got to keep calm lest he get too excited, lest the old boy have the heart attack or the stroke. No, God is a zealous God. His heart still races on a regular basis. His blood pressure rises. He's intense and passionate and on fire. He is ablaze with personal emotion. He is involved with his people. And here he says, I am zealous for Zion. God loves the Jewish people. And he loves their capital city of Jerusalem. While we're on it, God is zealous for you. Did you know that? Did you know that you can make God's blood pressure rise? That you can increase his pulse rate? That he is zealous for you? That he can look down on you and beam with such joy and you can thrill his heart to such degree at the same time too. You can hurt him and grieve him and bring tears to his eyes. God loves the Jewish people. He loves their capital city of Jerusalem. In fact, God will dwell in Zion. According to verse 3, he calls it the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. What an encouragement to the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel. God had returned with them. At the moment, their city was in ruins. But God promises to restore joy and safety and people and blessing to her streets. God even promises to turn their days of weeping into times of gladness. In the kingdom age, when Jesus reigns from Jerusalem, people from all over the world will come to Jerusalem to learn about God and to worship him. Verse 23 tells us, In those days, ten men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. One day, every Jew will be a tour guide. The Jewish people will be the light of the world. These promises, as well as many other like them, are the reason Bible-believing Israelis will never surrender Jerusalem to Palestinian control. God is zealous for Zion. Chapter 9 records judgments against Damascus and the Philistines. And in the midst of these judgments, Zechariah makes a prediction that Jesus fulfilled at his first coming. Verse 9 of chapter 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. In verses 9 and 10, we find Jesus' arrival, his attributes, his agenda, and his authority. Zechariah predicts here his arrival. He'll come on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. You remember before his final entry into Jerusalem, Jesus told his disciples to secure just such an animal 
He knew he was fulfilling scripture, and that's why he was so exact. Notice his attributes here. Jesus came lowly and riding on a donkey. Oriental kings rode on war horses. But when they went out among their people, they preferred donkeys. For a burrow made them accessible. It got them down on their people's level. It got them in touch with the people. It was a symbol of their humility and their care for their people. Jesus, too, came on a donkey. He came not to be served, but to serve us. Verse 9 predicts Jesus' first coming, whereas verse 10 predicts his second coming. Verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. Here's Jesus' agenda when he returns for a second time. His ultimate purpose will be peace. He'll institute a campaign of disarmament. He'll cut off the battle bow. He shall speak peace. Finally, note his authority here. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus will reign and rule over all the earth. The rest of chapter 9 and chapter 10 describe the exploits of the Maccabean Jews. These were the Jews who fought against the Greeks after the fall of Alexander the Great's empire. Verse 13 mentions, against your sons, O Greece. The Maccabeans were a priestly clan who revolted against Greek control and who gained a brief independence. The Maccabean period transpired during the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And here that period is predicted by Zechariah. In chapter 10, verse 3, Zechariah says that God's anger is aroused against the shepherds or the spiritual leaders of Israel. They are corrupt and they need to be judged. But in contrast, verse 4 describes the Messiah in four ways. Jesus is a cornerstone. He is a tent peg. He is the battle bow. And he is the unifying force. He is the cornerstone. Guys, he is the answer to every question. He's the tent peg. He is the solution to every problem. He is the battle bow. He is the victory over every enemy. And Jesus is every ruler together. He is the unifying force for every division. In Zechariah chapters 9 and 10, if those chapters speak of the Maccabean period, then chapter 11 depicts what follows it in Jewish history which, of course, was their rejection of their Messiah and the destructions that the Romans brought as a consequence of that act. Verse 4 says, Feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. The owners here are probably the Romans. The independence won by the Maccabeans didn't last long. The Roman rule began around 60 A.D., And over the years, the Romans became crueler and more oppressive. And finally, in 70 A.D., the Roman legion laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. The situation inside the walls during that siege was desperate, so much so that the people resorted to cannibalism just to stay alive. In verse 6, the Lord says, For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land. Verse 9 is an ominous verse. Let those who are left eat each other's flesh. And guess which date on the calendar marks the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans? It is amazing, but how about Tisha B'Av, 
or the ninth day of the fifth month. On the same day, the Babylonians burned the temple. 633 years later, the city fell to the Romans. This is why the ninth of Av is such a day of weeping and mourning for the Jewish people. In verse 7, Zechariah is to act out a parable. He's to take two staffs and name them. He calls them beauty and bonds. I call our two staffs Jenny and Sherry. And they do a wonderful job. They're both real beauties. Zechariah, though, takes the shepherd's rod called beauty and he breaks it in two. For God is going to break the covenant that he's made with his people. In light of the destruction that is to come, Zechariah will be without a job. He's entitled to a final paycheck and he asks for it in verse 12. And guess what they pay him? 30 pieces of silver. Exodus chapter 21 verse 32 tells us that that was the price of a slave. And it shows how much the people of Jerusalem valued a faithful shepherd. Listen to God's sarcasm in verse 13. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. Of course, this was all prophetic of Jesus. Judas Iscariot sold the most important life in history for 30 pieces of silver, the measly price of a slave, the princely price they set on me, God says. And you remember, Judas's 30 pieces of silver were also used to buy a potter's field. Zechariah finishes his parable by breaking the staff called bonds. It was a symbol of the broken unity between Israel and Judah and how the kingdom remained divided. Chapter 11 is a fascinating chapter. It's all over the map prophetically. The end of the chapter speaks of the worthless shepherd, another name for the Antichrist. The Jews will trust this man to be their savior. But verse 17 says that he leaves the flock. He eventually turns on the Jews and he tries to destroy them. It mentions a wound in his arm and in his right eye. He'll have a withered arm and he'll be blind in his right eye. Ways that the people left after the rapture will be able to identify the Antichrist. Revelation 13 verse 3 also mentions that he'll have a wound in his head. Chapter 11 and 12 describe the low point and the high point in Jewish history. In chapter 11, the Jews reject Jesus as their Messiah. Remember, they cried out that his blood be upon us and on our children. And that was the ominous moment. The destruction brought on by the Roman army was God's answer to that cry. The rejection of Christ, the true Christ, eventually will lead them to follow the Antichrist. But chapter 12 takes us from that low point to the Jews' high point. For the day will come when they will reconsider Jesus and they will embrace him as their Messiah. Chapter 12 opens with an amazing prophecy about Jerusalem. Verse 3 tells us, And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Guys, this could happen in our own day. Have you noticed that the headlines in today's papers are always about Jerusalem? Or so it seems. 
Why would the nations on the earth even care about Jerusalem? Why would you even know about what's going on in Jerusalem? It's a tiny little city in a tiny little country. It has no strategic value. It has no natural resources, no inherent riches. And yet it is the most hotly contested piece of real estate on the planet. Every nation on the earth has an opinion and a position on Jerusalem. It is indeed a heavy stone for all peoples. One day, Zechariah says, the nations of the earth will attack Jerusalem. And yet verses 8 and 9 tell us that God will defend his people. All the Jews will fight like David. They'll be filled with power and courage. Verse 12 tells us, it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. In the days ahead, count on it. Jerusalem will remain the flashpoint for conflict in the world. This city is a heavy stone that God will use to bring judgment on this wicked world. And as Jerusalem is surrounded, God will do a special work among the Jews. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 is an extremely important prophecy. He says, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Once two Jewish men, they got lost and they walked into this ornate Catholic cathedral. They just walked in to ask for directions, but they just happened to stumble in on an induction ceremony for 100 nuns. The nuns took their pledge to be married only to Jesus Christ. And when the ceremony was over, a couple of the priests saw the Jewish men back in the back of the room and they thought, wow, we better go and greet these fellows. And so they walked back to to say hello. And that's when the Jewish men both stopped and explained themselves. They said, hey, don't worry. We're with the groom's family. (laughs) And indeed, they are. The Jews are the groom's family. When God sent his son into the world, he chose to provide him two Jewish parents. When folks in the church at Rome suggested that God was through with the Jews, Paul protested, certainly not. He explained that after the church is raptured, God will turn his attention back to the Jew And in the end, all Israel will be saved. The Jews alive at the end of the Great Tribulation, according to Zechariah, will be gripped by the Holy Spirit. And they'll see Jesus, probably literally, in the clouds as he prepares to return. And at that moment, we're told, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. They'll turn to the Lord. In a spirit of repentance, and individually, they all will put their faith in Jesus Christ. In the end, all Israel will be saved. Now, at the coming of Christ, God will purify the Jew. Chapter 13 describes the elimination of idolatry, a zero tolerance for false prophets. Verse 7 speaks of Jesus. He is God's man. He is the true shepherd of Israel. But here's what happened the night Jesus was arrested. Zechariah says in verse 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
And that's what happened to the disciples the three days after Jesus was crucified. They all were scattered. And that's been the status for the Jew over the last 2,000 years. They, too, have been scattered without a homeland. Verse 9, though, tells us that God will bring one-third of the Jews through the fire. The trials associated with the Great Tribulation will purify 30% of the Jewish people. Chapter 14 describes the Battle of Jerusalem. It's the final battle before Jesus returns. Verse 2 says that all the nations will gather to war against Jerusalem. And the nations will deal a heavy blow. But verse 3 says that the Lord will fight for his people. Notice verse 4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Guys, in the very spot where Jesus ascended into heaven, he will return back to the earth. He left from the Mount of Olives. And he'll come back and he'll put his foot down on the very same spot, on the very same mountain. We're told, and the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. The power of Jesus' little toe falling on the mountaintop will set off an earthquake that will tear the mountain in two and totally reshape Jerusalem's topography. Thirty-five years ago, when Pan Am constructed a hotel on the Mount of Olives, they did seismic studies, and they determined a fault running down its center from east to west. They ended up building the hotel, but they built it further south, away from the fault. The point, though, is the Mount of Olives is unstable. It's waiting for Jesus to put his foot down and split it in two. Chapter 14 describes the aftermath of the cosmic upheavals that will rock the earth in the last days. The earth will shift off its axis. Verse 7 says the sun will will shine at night. Things will go berserk. Verses 8 and 9 tells of a river that will flow from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean and from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea, thus connecting the two bodies of water. This will bring life to the Dead Sea. This will make Jerusalem a port city. Verse 9 also says... And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Verse 12 is a provocative passage. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Notice these are similar to symptoms of exposure to radioactivity. And it could be that one of the plagues in the end times will be a nuclear bomb. Verses 16 through 21 describe what life will be like when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom on the earth. He'll rule the world from his temple in Jerusalem. Verse 16 tells us that everyone alive at the time will make a mandatory pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the fall once a year to worship the Lord at the Feast of Tabernacles. If you don't make it to Israel before then, you'll get a chance to go during the kingdom age. We'll all go up once a year in the fall to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. If anyone neglects the trip, though, the Lord will withhold rain from their lands. When you arrive at the temple, let me tell you what you'll see. You'll see a motto written all over the place. In all the temple's pots, in all the bowls, you'll see these words. Holiness to the Lord. That apparently will be the kingdom's motto. 
And the question for us tonight, the final thought, is the motto of the kingdom our motto? Do we desire holiness? Do we desire to live a set-apart life dedicated to God and to do our part in building for God a glorious temple? Father, thank you for your word through these two prophets. Lord, you've given us so much to think about tonight. Help us to ponder these truths and apply them to our heart. Help us to take home some specifics for our own lives, Lord. Continue to bless us in the days ahead, Lord, as we study your word. Bless all these guys this week, Lord. Give them a great week. Just fill their heart with your love. Put a bounce in their step, Lord. Put your joy in their life. Help them be a witness to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...